hypocrisy is about as close to half right as folks in Washington ever seem to get. Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This is for the last full week of September 2020. And this weekend podcast is where Paul talks about the big stories of the week that he's covered on thisiscommonsense.org, where he has been writing commentary since 1999. I read something. This wasn't part of Monday's uh, commentary, which was Yes, We Can, borrowing from our uh, famous president, uh, Barack Obama, and suggesting that, yes, we really can nominate a new Supreme Court justice and approve that justice or not approve him. And that's kind of how the process works. But I quoted uh, Donald Trump's comments right off, I guess, the helicopter getting from the, you know, from uh, whatever military base to the White House. And he was asked, you know, what he thought about this. And, of course, he had not heard that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away. And it was kind of interesting because you could tell he was affected that he, Oh, you know, Oh, I hadn't heard that. And, and, you know, president Trump is not Mr. Empathetic, uh, touchy feely guy. And I thought it was, I thought it, it kind of humanized him in a nice way. And, you know, that's just what's going through my little head, uh, as I see it. And then I saw an article, and this has nothing to do with my commentary, but this is why we have a podcast. Uh, um, but I saw an article somewhere on my phone, my tiny phone that I can't hardly see. But there was an article about Chris Matthews, who, of course, has kind of been booted out of MSNBC, but being attacked because on Twitter he had said something about Trump really being, I guess, empathetic and and kind of showing some emotion and concern for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, you know, uh, Trump very quickly said, you know, whether you agree or disagree, you know, she was an amazing woman. And um, anyway, I thought it was interesting. And I thought it was interesting that Chris Matthews picked up on it. And then I thought it was just, I guess, par for the course that Chris Matthews was viciously attacked for recognizing some humanity in uh, in President Trump, and we all know, or should know, or should be browbeaten to believe that there is no humanity. So anyway, this commentary, yes, we can, was uh, pointing out really that, you know, are Republicans in the Senate like Mitch McConnell, do they want to have it both ways? Yeah, they're hypocrites. And in fact, there are all kinds of other names we could call them. Are Democrats kind of the same way? It's kind of interesting because as Republicans are are kind of switching their position in the Senate, that well, maybe it's okay if we if we uh, you know confirm a justice. Um, now it wasn't okay four years ago when it was Obama's justice, but you know four years ago I had a commentary before they really were clear that we we're going to block any sort of hearing or or vote or anything, saying don't affirm or, or, you know, uh, approve any judge who's not an improvement to the court. And I guess that, you know, depends on how bad you think the court is, maybe whether a judge is an improvement or not. But I think it's not a bad line uh, to draw on the sand. If this judge is not an improvement, I'm not voting for him. And I think it would have been nice 
for Republicans to say, I don't think he has the votes. But if you want to vote on him, we'll give you a vote and then we'll vote him down. And then you can nominate someone else. And frankly, we'll do the same thing with him or her if we don't think that it's an improvement on the court. Now, somehow that's just too forthright and straightforward to be anything that anyone in Washington is going to consider. Uh, But, you know, there is hypocrisy. There's hypocrisy on the Republican side. There's hypocrisy on the Democratic side. And I'm sure there's hypocrisy everywhere. But Mr. Trump has every right to nominate someone. He wasn't in any sort of office uh, four years ago. And um, and it's it's interesting to me that I think if the you know, if everything was reversed and Republicans were saying, hey, it's really good for the country you know, if Democrats don't use the wins that they've gotten in recent elections to push through their agenda, uh, whether that's a law or whether that's a justice being confirmed. And um, I think they'd be laughed at. And of course, they wouldn't have the media, you know, uh, on their side. And so they'd be more apt to realize this just doesn't make much sense. But with some sort of plausibility, I guess, uh, this idea that Republicans should just say, hey, we have the votes to confirm a Supreme Court justice and we have a vacancy. But, you know, just to be nice guys uh, and bring everyone together, we're going to not put uh, our person on the Supreme Court. We're going to wait and see what happens in the election. And and I think their base would be uh, extremely upset, as they should be. Um, And then, of course, what's the pushback? If Republicans are going to actually do what the Constitution says they have every power to do. People can love the Constitution, wonderful document, never any document creating a government in the history of mankind that I think was better. But boy, it's not good enough. And one of the failures is that it doesn't cement the court in the sort of way that it should. And of course, part of it is I think the, you know, we could go through all the history of Marbury versus Madison and everything else, but it's it's the court has more power, I think, today than probably the framers intended. Um, I also think that the the federal courts are the only branch of government that is even halfway functional. Uh, I do think that overall, the uh, federal courts, the lifetime tenure has created a fairly independent federal judiciary. And I've lost plenty of cases in federal court that I've been on one side and not prevailed. Uh, but there is an independence there. And I have also prevailed. And, and, um, and I think it, it, you know, when, when I look at state courts, I see corrupt political courts. And as much as I disagree with decisions that have been made by the federal courts, I don't see the same sort of corrupt political you're not on the right team, so you have no chance. Um, and I know when I'm talking with people at the state level about something, we might want to go into court and argue on First Amendment grounds or something else. The idea of going to a state court is is just ridiculous in my mind. I, I never want to do it because uh, I, I don't really know any state courts that I wouldn't consider to be politically crooked. And I don't mean that they're necessarily on the take in every case but that they are political and that they will decide issues not on the merits, but on the politics. And I think that that not that it doesn't ever happen at the federal level, but it's um, the independence that the lifetime tenure has has given 
has been really effective, I think. And I'd actually like to see us try that at the state level more because those courts are so bad and so political and so partisan. Interestingly enough, the response to if Republicans do you know, what the Constitution kind of says you're supposed to do next, um, the idea about court packing and that what Democrats should do, and of course, we need a constitution that doesn't allow one party to come in and change all the all the rules and all the norms. And, and you do that in the constitution. So we need something in the constitution that sets the uh, number of justices and doesn't allow the Congress, every new Congress could change it willy-nilly from, you know, nine to 27 and then back to three and that that's uh and and the whole idea of court packing is exactly what they're talking about doesn't sound good does it it sounds like one side has all of a sudden gotten enough votes and they're going to pull up all the ladders so that they control everything from then on out and of course if they ever lose then the other side is is almost encouraged in fact is encouraged to do exactly the same thing that i think is a recipe for uh disaster and for the court to fail in the way that the Congress, the legislative branch of the federal government has failed. Um, But I do like, and uh, I guess it was maybe the next day after this ran, the Washington Post, and uh, it was a little bit embarrassing. It was through no fault of my own, I assure you. But the Washington Post endorsed term limits for Supreme Court justices. And it seems to me that you could go to a bigger court, if you went to it in some gradual step-by-step way that didn't give the party in control moving toward a bigger court all the advantages today. In other words, if you said, well, we want to move to a court that's 11 or 13 or 15, you would add maybe one justice every automatically every uh, four years or one every two years or, but that, that if you lost an election, the other side would have an equal chance to add their justice. And um, because in essence, Republicans have a little advantage in the court, even as badly as all the Republican presidents, except for Trump have picked justices. uh, There've been more Republican presidents. That's why they have more people on the Supreme court. So, um, Anyway, I think the term limits, I love lifetime tenure for judges because they're not supposed to be legislators. They're independent. You don't want independent legislators. You want legislators that are close to the people. You want judges that are close to the law and are independent. I don't really understand your position because you're notorious for wanting term limits for the Supreme Court, but you're talking about lifetime tenure. That that doesn't make any sense. You can't have term limits on lifetime tenure. That makes no sense. So what are you talking about? I'm talking about the federal judiciary as a whole, which means the federal district judges, the appellate court, court of appeals judges, and the U.S. Supreme Court. And I would like lifetime tenure for all federal court judges because I think that lifetime tenure creates an independent judiciary not beholden to elected officials and legislators and so on. But I think when it reaches the level of the top, the U.S. Supreme Court, and I would look at it the same way in a state, that I would want the judges to have lifetime tenure, and I don't believe any state has lifetime tenure, 
that's only at the federal level. And maybe you want less judges uh, because if you're going to give them all lifetime tenure, you don't want all all that many. Uh, but that's kind of a side issue. You, I want that independence. But when you reach the level of the U.S. Supreme Court or state Supreme Court, there is a level of power that I think is not healthy for someone to wield for an unlimited amount of time. And frankly, a lot of U.S. senators and U.S. congressmen, senators being elected every six years, congressmen being elected every two years, serve longer with all those elections than judges do who are appointed for a lifetime term. Because when they're appointed, they only serve so long before they retire or what have you. And they're usually appointed later in life. But what we're seeing with these Supreme Court nominations is they're getting younger and younger so they can serve for longer and longer and that there's a corruption outside of the court. It's not just a matter of because uh, look, any of these judges have power and that can go to your head. But there are two principles that we're weighing against each other. One is independence. That's why you want the lifetime tenure. And I'm just suggesting that when you get at the very top, when you've gone from circuit court to court of appeals to state Supreme Court, or when you've gone to federal district court to court of appeals to U.S. Supreme Court, when you're at that U.S. Supreme Court level, I don't think it makes sense for those people to wield that kind of power for more than 12 years or 18 years was suggested in the Washington Post. And, you know, and obviously the, the, the terms uh, the amount of time is going to be a little bit more than than with a, a congressman or a senator where you're being elected to shorter terms. And it's a little bit different thing. But but so these are two somewhat competing principles, obviously. Uh, if you were to say to me, Tim, you can only have one. You can have term limits for all federal court judges or lifetime tenure for all federal court judges. It might surprise you. And as much as I love term limits for all elected offices, for judges, I would opt for lifetime tenure because of the need for that independence. It's only because of the, I think, the power of that position and the political machinations going on around those positions. The, I mean, let's, let's think about the, the uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, uh, confirmation hearings. I was in Rome at a conference for most of the fireworks, but, you know, kind of could follow it on TV and in the morning paper and so on. Uh, and on Facebook, you know, just, just getting online and looking at things. That was an incredibly nasty, nasty battle where there were, uh, I don't know what, uh, I'm going to forget her name, Ford. Uh, Christine you know, Blasey Ford. Yes. I, I don't know whether she's speaking gospel truth or no truth at all. I just don't know, you know, and then some of it wasn't, there wasn't enough detail to really be able to know, you know, what happened exactly. And so for some, somebody from the outside, how do you make that judgment? But there were at least two women who came forward and made charges that later said, we, we made them up. And, you know, I think most people who charge these things don't make them up. But we have a political process where I would not be at all surprised uh, 
at that sort of thing. And so the level of power that these seats now have at the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, has a corrupting influence even even outside of the court, a corrupting influence in Congress and in our political process. And so I think term limits is a is a, a smart way to deal with that. And of course, court packing would be to double down and say, let's let's really fully rip apart our whole constitutional structure. What did you think of my idea of just putting terms? Because you're talking about term limits on something that has no terms at present. So why yes. not just why not just have eight year terms that they have to be uh, re re uh, reappointed every eight years? You have two choices then. Who does the reappointing? And if the reappointing is done by kind, it wouldn't make sense for it to be reappointing by a president because of course they're term limited. They're only going to be there eight years. Uh, Congress might reappoint or re up. Uh, you, you know, not really reappoint, but maybe it's a retention type election where Congress, you get enough votes, you stay. But I don't like that because that's the last people that you want deciding whether a judge stays. In essence, the judge's job is to say, no, that law you wrote, it didn't it didn't pass constitutional muster. Sorry. And so you don't want that judge about to strike down a law, but thinking, well, next year I'm going to need their votes to be able to stay on this court. Now, you could let the public decide, but even then, now you're really actively cutting against the independence principle because they need the votes even of the public. You want that judge deciding it not by what the latest poll said, but by what he believes the law says. And so I, I don't like that. Um, you're right, uh that, that there are no terms, so it really, in essence, isn't term limits. What they'd be doing is setting a term and then limiting it, limiting it to one. And I think that is the right way. Now, I have to say, I, you know, the whole judicial aspect is difficult because, in essence, you're trying to create some independence, but you don't want too much independence. Um, and so it, it's tough. Um, I have liked in some of the states these retention votes where the public does get the vote to retain or not. And they almost always are 60 percent plus for retention unless somebody you know puts together a campaign and, and challenges. But at least it gives an opportunity for the public to weigh in. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the public weighing in because of the independence issue. I'm dead set against any sort of retention that has the legislature retaining judges because those two branches need to be separated uh, and not together when that happens or, or you don't have an independent judiciary. Well, I guess that makes sense, um, sort of. It's a difficult question <laughs> because we're, we're dealing here with the ultimate in checks and balances uh, with the judiciary running on different principles than either the presidency or, the, uh, or Congress. So that's what we're talking about is that how do you gain independence from politics? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, right. my preferred method would be that no one can be a judge if they're a member of a political party and have worked in a political campaign. Uh, all of a sudden, lawyers would have the, would have a career path choice. They become legislators or they become judges. The ones who become judges wouldn't get to do all the political stuff. I don't like the idea of of somehow it's like uh, sometimes when when uh, someone well take you know Joe Biden he's vice president 
well, maybe we ought to make a law to where their kids can't do certain things or take certain jobs or get certain money and so on. But I don't think you ever have a right to say somebody's related to someone, so they they have to, you know, if if Joe decides to run for president, then his brother Fred can't do something, or his wife can't do something, or his son, or, and so I think so much of this is dependent on, it's dependent on a media that produces information that can be trusted. It's dependent on a public that is alert and that uses information to say, hey, wait a second, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, in other words, so often I think we want some law or some system because any system you set up is going to have to be fixed and, and, and conjoled here and there. And maybe, you know, you, once, once something's in place, you got to see how it works and sometimes, you know, fix the rough edges. And, uh, and so... I think that rather than some law that sets everything, you have to, you know, you have to kind of have an engaged public. And and so that's, you know, with with so many of the problems we I was on a, I, I did a panel today and we we're talking about initiative and referendum and direct democracy and the fact that in this pandemic all kinds of things that could have been helpful were just not available because politicians don't want them to be available because they don't want there to be, you know, um, a check on their power. And and we have a, a uh, commentary we'll talk about later uh, that ran on Thursday, uh, who is responsible. And in essence, um, you know, we, the public, one of the things that oftentimes falls down is checks and balances that depend on the public being engaged. And it's usually because people in politics have found ways to keep information away from the public and to do things that don't get seen. But we have to be more, I think, involved. And when I think about um, setting, you know, uh, the Democrats might pack the court, the Republicans might do this. I'd, I wouldn't trust the Republicans setting up new rules for the judiciary. I wouldn't I wouldn't trust the Democrats doing it. And the truth is, I think I'd trust them even less if they got together and did it. Um, so many of these issues have to be public issues that people weigh in on and that the mainly that the people who ultimately pull the levers in the Congress understand that people are paying attention. I, I think the best time in Washington, the, uh, the, the time that Congress was probably the most aware of where the public was and concerned and trying to do better, was between 92 and 94, after Ross Perot got 19% of the vote on largely a reform agenda, it scared the Dickens out of members of Congress. I used to joke to people that it's like the Congress is scared and there's and there's no good politician except a scared politician. And so, um, you know, you, you look at some of these different reforms that the parties suggest, and even if there are kernels of good, I always feel like if it's decided by them without a tremendous amount of public input, it will slide to the bad. And, and the, the public is pushing term limits, and we know what those are. And so I think they make a very good reform at the Supreme Court level. But most of the other things that I think will get talked about 
are going to be talked about because they help one side or the other. At least they think they do. You were talking on Tuesday about Virginia, something about Virginia's election business. I've already forgotten it. Once again, you know, you write one of these things, and I look at it at the time, and if it's about Virginia politics, it just evaporates out of my head. (laughs) You know, it's funny because I'm much better on Washington politics because I find Washington state politics very interesting. And I, I live in Virginia, but I find Virginia politics not very interesting at all. One of the things we've done here in Virginia is we have local, like state legislature elections in odd numbered years. So we're going to vote this year on president and Congress and Senate, but no local stuff, no state rep. And then next year, we're going to vote on state rep and so on. And then the next year, we'll vote on Congress and stuff, but not president. Then the next year on state rep and stuff. But it means that everything's broken up to where you go to the polls, you got five or six things to vote for at most. It's just it's just not fun. It's like you realize I got no choice. I make no difference. This is and every race seems to be I know who's going to win. I vote out of some kind of weird, you know, sense of duty or because walking through the motions is kind of pleasing. But it is the the biggest waste of time I can imagine. And when I moved to Virginia in 1990 from Arkansas, I thought, well, I'll bet Virginia has a much more vibrant political, you know, system and process and might be fun. And boy, was I wrong. Um, as bad as Arkansas politics is sometimes there's because of the initiative process at the state and local level. And just because it's, I think a, a little bit more competitive state, um, in some ways, it's uh, anyway. Well, you have a colorful uh, governor, though. Your governor is very colorful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the. In case anyone didn't didn't pick up on Tim's very funny, that's Ralph Northam, who wore about blackface, admitted that, also had a Ku Klux Klan uh, uh, person in a Ku Klux Klan outfit in his medical yearbook uh, page and doesn't know how it got there and resigned, but then said he wasn't resigning and apologized, but then wasn't apologizing because he didn't think it was him. And some law firm that sort of connected in a big investigation and couldn't tell. And frankly, he wasn't very helpful in the investigation, but the newspapers and the media Eh, they don't care. They didn't do any independent investigation. They haven't asked any follow-up questions. He's a Democrat. So if he's a racist, who cares? Now, if he's a Republican and he's a racist, that's really a problem. But for, for the Washington Post, for the the Virginia media, they don't care. They, you don't see a story about it, no investigation. They don't care. So that's kind of sickening. But um, that isn't what the commentary is about. Isn't it great to have these podcasts so you learn about everything except what, what we actually were talking about this week? I like the title. The title was Worms for Early Bird Voting. That's 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 the title. <laughs> we, you know, there is this view that early voting is a wonderful thing. And it, it does seem smart to not have all the voting on one day. You know, if someone's sick that day, they don't get the vote. We ought to have, it seems to me, a couple of weeks of early voting. Um, 
But I believe it's really important to have people voting together, kind of all at the same time. And I don't mean the same second or the same day, but the same couple of weeks. And when you get to 30 days of early voting or six weeks of early voting, uh, this commentary ran on Tuesday, which is six weeks away from Election Day. But voting in Virginia began the week before. So this is a huge, long period where voters are casting ballots. And that means if you're running a, a challenger's campaign against a, a powerful incumbent, that incumbent who now has to advertise for six weeks instead of maybe three or four weeks, he can, he can probably come up with the money to do that. Challengers, it makes it very, very difficult. For an initiative campaign, when we were doing term limits around the country, our idea was always we want to be able, if the other side's going to spend money and try to beat us, we want to go toe-to-toe with them in the last you know, couple of weeks of the campaign when people are making up their minds and voting either early or absentee or getting ready to vote on election day. And to be able to do two weeks of advertising is expensive. And But if you could do that, we felt like we could compete with anybody, even if they were doing longer, if they were doing four weeks or six weeks of advertising, we could, we could hold our own by just doing the last couple of weeks. But if people are voting for four or six weeks, instead of for just the last couple of weeks, all of a sudden you can't afford to be silent for those two or four weeks when people are literally casting their ballot because the other people who have money are on the airwaves and they're hearing that and they might be persuaded. And what are they hearing from you? Nothing because you can't afford to advertise. And so when an election becomes a six week affair instead of a two week affair, it tends to be almost three times as expensive. And that's a huge advantage for powerful, well-heeled special interests and a huge advantage for incumbents over challengers. And, and people need to be aware of that because all we're ever, we're, all that you ever hear seems to be early voting is great, whatever's easiest for the voters. And frankly, that's not, you know, that's not a crazy way to think. We want it to be as easy as possible for anyone who wants to vote to vote. But we don't want to create a system in which the, you know, all of a sudden, if you've got more money, you've got a huge advantage. And that's, you know, so often we want to talk about, oh, the rich are terrible. And, you know, we want to create these divisions and, and you know, we want to be throw brickbats at the, at the wealthy people or something. I'm not anti-rich, but I don't want to create a system in which you supersize the power of someone who has more money. And you do have to recognize sometimes when you make it easier for voters, if that entails doing it over six weeks or four weeks or, you know, that kind of time period, you're talking about a ton of money and all of a sudden you have advantaged the wealthier interest. Now, with the pandemic, you can kind of understand it. You're trying to separate it. You're you're trying to elongate the system because you don't want people crowded at the polling places. But I can tell you. Uh, the first couple of days of, uh, I think we've had early voting for what, maybe a week now. And it's right down the street from me is the, the Department of Motor Vehicles where they're doing it. And it's, 
is a traffic jam. They've got police out there directing traffic and so on. So, you know, everyone wants to do it early now. So it's probably on election day, we're going to stroll in and, you know, there won't be anybody there. Um, and it'll be safer, you know, against the big COVID. But, but anyway, so, you know, there's some plausible reason for spreading it out maybe this year. But I can tell you in recent years, anything that makes the process easier, longer, um, it's all for the good. We get more people to vote. I want more people to vote. I don't want anyone to vote who doesn't really know if they want to or not. You know, if, if you're one of those people who goes, I don't know if I want to vote, I'm not spending any time trying to talk you into it. Because if you're not into it, you know, don't just go and, you know, kind of, you know, flip a coin to decide. But anyone who wants to vote, let's make it possible. Let's make it as easy as possible. But we, we, have, we have not, in the media, and of course among politicians, they're completely self-interested. We don't want them making these rules without us being there and aware of what's going on, because they'll write them in terrible ways. The footnote to that piece has a citation of Bruno Kaufman, who you've interviewed on one of our websites. I think it was on my website, actually. Uh, but you've interviewed him. Something about second voting? Yes, and Bruno's a friend, a great guy, um, works with the uh, Initiative Referendum Institute uh, Europe and works with Democracy International. He's also a, a journalist with the Swiss, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the media outfit's name is, but a uh, really interesting guy. And in that piece that's linked at thisiscommonsense.org, uh, and, and which one was this? This is the Worms for Early Bird Voting. In that link, um, uh, he talks about the different ways they do it in Sweden. And there are several things they do that I didn't like. Um, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of this either, really. But he talks about how you can vote early there and then you can go on Election Day and change that vote. It's called second voting. And in fact, I was on this panel today and someone we didn't get to the person's question, but I saw in the little chat. Uh, in the Zoom call that somebody had a question uh, for me about what I thought about second voting and being able to vote a second time if you wanted to change your early vote. And frankly, um, I kind of like that someone's thought about, oh, you can vote, but then if you want to change it, here's the process. But I have to tell you, that just seems like very complicated. And maybe in Sweden, they've got everything set up so well that it's no big deal. Oh, Mr. Jones or whatever, probably not Jones. Uh, but, you know, here, yes, we've got your early ballot. Yeah, we'll just toss that out. Here's your new ballot. But I could see it being very uh, confusing if we had maybe 100 million Americans decide that, oh, we voted early, but now we want to come and cast a new vote. And so I really like the idea of you cast one vote and and that's what that's what counts. Um, and I I think early voting should be very close to not early voting to voting on election day. So I, I really think, you know, more than a two week period of voting is a big mistake. And um, and, I, and I don't think that's stopping. I don't think the problem with, you know, there, there, a lot of places, the rules on absentee voting and different things, if you have to go out of town at the last minute just becomes a hassle to do it all. That's the sort of stuff that needs to be fixed to allow people to vote. 
this idea that we have to have a six-week period because we're all too busy that we couldn't possibly fit in you know, the act of voting unless you give us this six- or seven-week period, that's silly. Well, also silly is what you talked about in the Wednesday's piece, which is about taxes. Is that taxes in California? They wouldn't charge taxes in California. I yeah, yeah. I th- and, and the title, Just Never Satisfied. Okay. And there's a hippo is the, is the uh, image. The hippo <laughs> eating money. I, I must say the eating cash. That's, that was, that's, a, that's a good image. It's interesting because we always hear about, and one of the things we point out in this piece is that, you know, what was it? in during the Second World War... You know, you had tax rates as high as 94 percent into the 50s. I guess you had over 90 percent on certain thresholds of income. Um, And of course, those thresholds, like one threshold, I think, was five hundred thousand dollars. And and you think, well, yeah, you know, today that might be a threshold. Well, that five hundred thousand dollars was a threshold in 1913. That's the equivalent of $13 million a year today. So, so these high tax rates didn't really kick in until people were making what was incredible money at that point. Um, but I think the real key to this piece, the real message that we're sending to people, in California, they're looking to charge a wealth tax. Now, the income tax, you're... you're you know, sales tax, okay, there's commerce going on, the government has to protect and defend against crooks and, and you know, have court systems. And so there's a certain cost of doing business to protect that business that, that goes in taxes. Um, and, you know, when it comes to income, well, each year you pay a certain amount, but then what you keep and what you have is yours. The thing about this wealth tax is it basically sends the message that nothing you have is yours. If we ever want to come and take it, we just come and take it. It reminds me a lot of communist China, where you have all these very wealthy corporations that are doing great business that at any day that the CCP says, and and in fact, the CCP just passed a rule that they're said there that companies have to put more CCP people into their payroll and stuff. But basically, any day that the government says, all that money you've got in the bank, it's ours, they just take it. Um, anyway, so, uh, but that's the message that's being sent when you have a wealth tax, is that nothing is yours, and that we can come take it anytime we want. And I think it's a horrible, horrible message. But of course, how do you get your nose into the tent? Well. Bob, uh, Rob Bonda, who is the assemblyman who came up with it, points out this is just going to be on not even 1% of the people of California. It's going to be on the top 0.4% of people with accumulated wealth. And so it's only about 30,000 people in the whole state. Now, one of the interesting things is if these people, if this passes, it has a provision that if these people then leave the state because they say, no, you're not going to steal all my stuff. California, for it's like for a period of, what, 10 years, I think it is, that um, they can still come after you to grab your wealth even after you've left the state. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. 
But here's the biggest point. Does anybody in their right mind think that if we allow government to start grabbing people's accumulated wealth, that they're going to stop at the top 0.4%? Do you think they won't maybe move that to, how about the top 1%? And then before you know it, it might be the top 2 or 3 or 4%, or maybe the top 5%. Heck, if they get to the top 10 or 15%, they're going to be talking about taxing me. Um, it's, it, there's no way. Anytime you ask anyone who knows anything about money and population and arithmetic, there's no way that government is going to you know, have all this cash because they expropriated all the money of the wealthy people. If there wasn't this giant middle class with money in the United States, the government couldn't function like it does. It is us who's going to pay. And, and every time when they say tax the rich, I know the rich person's going to duck and that tax is going to hit me. You can take it to the bank. Or take it from the bank. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to me, of course, it's the wealth tax is very much like the property tax, and, and that's my least favorite tax that I pay. It is because it's the same sort of thing that says even when you've paid off your house, it's never really yours. You have to keep paying the, the government. But the wealth tax is even worse in the sense that it just says that there's no way that there's nothing you have or will ever have that we couldn't take. And that's just, God, that's a terrible message to send. Speaking of terrible messages to send, well, I don't know. You can take that a lot of different ways. But this week on Thursday, I had a commentary, Who is Responsible? And it was about the Breonna Taylor case. She was the woman who uh, it was what we thought was a no-knock raid. Turns out that some people say they did knock, that they got a no-knock warrant from a judge, but they they lowered its power or something i don't i've read about seven articles on it i'm still not 100 sure i know exactly what that warrant was or wasn't but long story short police entered this house they busted down the door they did have a warrant they weren't at the wrong house necessarily because they were coming to see what was at that house. They didn't necessarily know they were going to get Brianna Taylor's old boyfriend, who was kind of the main target in their investigation. Instead, she has a new boyfriend. He's armed. He sees someone breaking down the door. He actually thought it was her old boyfriend, he told reporters, and who was kind of a criminal type. And he was scared and thought they were in danger of losing their life. He fires his gun. They fire back, which, of course, if you're fired on, you're a policeman and you think it's a dangerous situation, you're likely to do that. They hit Breonna Taylor five times, killed her. He was not hit, her boyfriend. Uh, one of the policemen was hit uh, by the shot fired by her boyfriend. One of the policemen fired like 10 times into a neighboring apartment. I think he got a little, little out of control there. Um, and that's the policeman who was charged with some type of, what is what was it, uh, wanton endangerment, because he basically fired into 
some apartment that had nothing to do with anything. None of them were charged in her murder. And one of the points I was trying to make in this piece is that's not all that surprising because the problem in this case, like think about it from the policeman's standpoint, he's going, he's got a warrant from a judge who apparently thinks this is a dangerous enough situation that he's going to say, you can go in without knocking. I mean, that's how dangerous it is. You need to have a, the, the uh, advantage of surprise. And you go in and you're, you've announced, they say they have, and there's some dispute there, but they say they have, and then you're breaking down the door and all of a sudden shots fired and your buddy's hit. You're going to open up. And, and so it's, it's horrible. But is it the fault of the policemen? Is this because the policemen were racist, evil people who wanted to shoot someone? I don't think so. And I think here that there is some blame on the judge who maybe gave a no-knock warrant because the warrant actually was a full-fledged no-knock warrant, at least from what I've read. And I think he bears some responsibility. Why are we killing people and uh, having these gun battles where sometimes police are also killed to fight this drug war when almost anybody in their right mind knows now that this is going to go on forever? It doesn't seem to reduce the use of drugs. It doesn't seem to reduce any of the harms of drugs. It only piles on top all kinds of new harms where people's lives are ruined in a criminal justice system where police are constantly policing and policing more in poor neighborhoods and creating uh, the kind of rifts that become racial uh, problems in those neighborhoods because police are all over them to enforce the war on drugs, which drugs could be in anybody's purse, in anybody's car, in anybody's house, and these sorts of incidents. You get rid of the war on drugs. And Breonna Taylor is alive. And you get rid of the war on drugs. One of the footnotes on this piece, I mentioned Corey May, who was a gentleman in Mississippi, uh, late 90s, I believe it was. <clears throat> Could have been early 2000s. But he's in his apartment. He's asleep. Someone's busting down his door. He fires. He hits them. He kills them. It was police with a no-knock warrant coming to get him because they think he's a drug kingpin or something. They had the wrong place. But Corey May spent years on death row in Mississippi for killing the policeman. But again, just like the police in the Breonna Taylor case, now maybe they made, did some things wrong. Who knows? I don't know him. I don't know Corey May. But it's the same sort of thing. They're put in a situation in which they're threatened and they defend themselves. And it seems to me that the rest of us, the police, are responsible for some bad behavior at different times. That needs to be dealt with. But this is a case in which it seems to me that the drug war, the laws and policies that allow these sorts of raids in the middle of the night, these people are really dangerous. Maybe it's safer to get everybody else out of that apartment complex and then use a bullhorn to say, you know what? We're, we've got you surrounded. We have to have some respect for human life. And 
to, to allow these policies to continue on and on is outrageous. And so in this piece, I suggest that the police are not as responsible for Breonna Taylor's death as the politicians who've allowed these policies to be implemented and who've allowed the drug war to continue. And that ultimately, who's responsible for these politicians? It's us. And so I'm not suggesting that we pretend that police mis misconduct doesn't happen. It happens all the time, way too much. There are things we've got to do to fix it. Changing rules, changing laws. But it's time that we stop pretending that the only problem we have are these crazy policemen who are racist. We, I think about all these, uh, we hear all the time, there are more people incarcerated in the America than anywhere else. We've got a big problem. We've got to stop incarcerating so many people. And I think, wait a second, let's, let's analyze, let's unpack this just a little bit. How did we get too many people in jail? Did we have too many people commit murder and we caught them all and we put them in jail and we decided, oh, there's too many people. So even though they're all murderers who are all guilty, we want to let some of them go. Is that what this is about? Is that what we mean when we say there are too many people in prison? Or do we mean there are too many people in prison who never belonged in prison in the first place? Or even if you think they did belong at some point, are part of some stupid mandatory minimum sentence. So somebody selling, you know, two joints of marijuana is going to prison for 20 years. Um, they may be guilty in some sense of a real crime. I don't think selling marijuana is a real crime. You might. But even if you do, ridiculous type sentences. But what I'm getting at is we don't have a problem simply of too many people in jail. We've got a problem of putting people in jail when they don't belong there. And that's where we get to the drug war. And, you know, and look, there are crooks who decide that selling drugs is more lucrative than robbing people's houses. So I'm not naive. I know that some of the people who are out there selling drugs are not good people. And they might just move to some other line of criminal activity if all of a sudden drugs were legalized and the profit margin and, and all the advantages of the black market are gone. But let them and then we'll arrest them for a real crime and we will put them in jail and we won't feel bad about them being there. And so we have two issues. We have the issue of putting people in jail for actions that aren't really crimes. There's no victim. The drug war other victimless crimes, prostitution, gambling, things like that. And then I think we also have this um, lack of understanding that, you know, prison isn't always the right solution. And it seems to me that on all kinds of property crimes, uh, embezzlement, all kinds of nonviolent, but absolutely criminal acts, that we ought to be looking at more restitution and things that don't put them in prison. Uh, but this idea that somehow we don't have to look at how did this person get to be in prison? I don't want to let murderers go early. 
I don't want to just release people because we don't we don't like the numeric, you know, the, the number of people who have to be in pots at whatever state prison. I want to stop putting in people in prison for things they don't belong in prison for. And there's plenty of people that fit that. You know, uh, Tim, I think that's actually when I look back at the, the Obama administration, I think it's the best thing that Obama did was to begin to look and issue pardons and commutations for people who were in for drug crimes and other things. I think on some of these, and I don't think uh, Trump has done it in anywhere near the same comprehensive way, and Obama could have done it a lot more comprehensively. But, but I think it's also uh, some of these uh, pardons that and commutations that Trump has given for people who were in, like the one woman who I think was, was sentenced to like life or something for drugs, and it was just ridiculous, and, and he ended up either pardoning or commuting her sentence. Um, that's, that's something, if I were running for president, I would basically say, if you elect me, the drug war is over, because I'm going to pardon every... Anybody brought up on federal charges uh, is going to go free because I'm going to pardon them. And um, and I, I, I don't think it'd be the right thing maybe for some president to just decide to do that if he campaigned on something else. But I would let the public know. And I think it's a great thing for any you know a libertarian running for president to make it clear. If you elect me, I do have the power to end at least the federal drug war. And um, and it would it, the the benefits, uh, not just to people who wouldn't be incarcerated, but the society as a whole would be, I think, quite immense. Well, that's Thursday. And Friday is a, a different story, very different story. You know, Friday is a sweet, great victory of 2020. It's about Minnesota and it's about one of our favorite groups, the Institute for Justice, which does just tremendous legal work on all kinds of things uh, on on uh, these different uh, ridiculous economic uh, hurdles that people have to jump over from occupational licensing to, well, to this rule in Minnesota. In Minnesota, wineries were forbidden from using more than a certain percentage of grapes from outside the state in their wines, and it, it actually... Uh, created a situation where there were certain wines because you couldn't get the grapes from Minnesota that you couldn't make if you were a Minnesota winery. Um, but regardless, this to me, this is a wonderful ruling where the judge came out and said, you can't do this anymore. And so let's applaud the Institute for Justice. Let's applaud this judge. Let's applaud these, these uh, plaintiffs for stepping forward and saying, uh-uh, I'm not going to let you do this to me. But let's step back just a second and realize we talk about living in a free country. And how free is a country in which there are cockamamie rules about whether you can crush grapes that were grown in some other state and put it in your wine? Does that make any sense whatsoever? And I'm sure someone somewhere will say, oh, well, it's a, it's a health issue that the government has to know everything. There, there's no, there is no rationale for this whatsoever. 
This is about somebody with some connection to someone in power who says, I want to have more power to make money selling my grapes because they're the only grapes that people can buy. This is about power and control and distorting a marketplace to be a, a basically a special interest. You get special treatment. We pick the winners and losers in government. This is the sort of state capitalism or fascism or it's ugly. It's it's everything that America and free markets are against. Let's you know, we I remember finding out years ago that in certain states you had to get permission from other moving companies to start a moving company. And the reason given was well, if there are too many moving companies, they won't be able to make money. As if people couldn't, you know, people who wanted to start moving companies couldn't figure that out on their own. These are all about economic control through political power. It's about, it's the same sort of thing that um, happens kind of on the other, it strikes me as like a flip in the old Soviet Union. You know, if you knew somebody, there was all kinds of stuff you might be able to get. You couldn't go to the store and buy it because it wasn't available for everybody. But if you had the special in, you might be able to get it. And here it's sort of the same thing. If you have the special connection, you can go into business and you can trade and do things the way you want and you could get rich. But you better know us. You better be part of the club. And what freedom is all about is that you don't have to be part of any club there's no secret decoder ring you get to do what you want to do and when i think about living in a place where you don't have the freedom to buy grapes from iowa when you're living in minnesota i mean that's insane and this is not the only case we have done so many stories about this Institute Justice for Justice has won so many cases about this. And here's the, here's the ugly side. The Institute for Justice could be 10,000 times bigger than it is. And it still could not take every case of every entrepreneur out there in America being screwed over by politicians and their cronies. And so we have to actually change some of these laws. We have to create a, a system and a legal framework in which you can't do this all the time because it's not enough. It, it's great that we have the Institute for Justice out there defending our rights one family or company or person at a time, but we've got to do more. We've got to stop this. We've got to create a legal framework where your economic rights can't just be stripped away from you all the time. And and that's, I think, Institute for Justice points the way to do that with some of these cases. But we've got to do it in legislatures and city councils and in the Congress. And and I think I think these sorts of issues, occupational licensing, all these different rules, this is a great place for people on the left and on the right, on the right where they care about free markets on the left where they care about the little guy having a chance 
to get into the game as well on the economy. And of course, libertarians love it. This is a this is these sorts of issues are great issues. The politicians will not pick them up as quickly because, of course, their stock and trade is I've got access to the government. You need me. And the less you need them, the less power they have. So it isn't the sort of issue that's going to be picked up by the R's and the D's very easily. But it is the sort of issue that I think has tremendous support across the country. And we're going to continue to highlight them in Common Sense. This is commonsense.org. And, uh, and these, are, these are important issues because we can talk about freedom all we want. But if in little ways like this, if, if it takes a national organization and a ton of lawyers for you to be able to purchase a grape from, you know, two blocks away in another jurisdiction, something bad is wrong. And I hate to tell you this, people, but something bad is wrong. We have to fix it. Well, that would be a great place to stop right there. However, yeah. I just I've, I want to double down on that statement just a little bit because there's a tendency for people when we talk about this that this is just about grapes. This is just about wine. This is just about bubble. You know, just this is a small matter. This is just this is just little business. We don't care about this. This is not the worst problem. Well, this is what happens in the healthcare industry. The healthcare industry in nearly every state is run precisely like like the Minnesota wine industry was run with rules like this. Or the or like the one you mentioned of need, you know the moving company needing to get the permission of other moving companies, right. hospitals and doctors' offices throughout the country have to get the permission of other doctors' offices and, and hospitals, and uh, that's a, one of the many reasons why medicine is so messed up in this country, and people don't realize it because they think that government's there to help them, when really maybe it's there to help somebody else. Yes. Yes, that's the the uh, I remember many years ago. Um, I don't know why this jumped out at me, but I'll say it. Um, there was a guy talking about um, Archer Daniels Midland. And and they you always saw him because they, you know, they advertised on meet the press and places where you thought, why are you wasting your tax dollars? But they're they're trying to reach a certain audience. They had given a hundred million dollars in campaign contributions. And the guy who mentioned that said, and you have to think, well, what what could they possibly have gotten for a hundred million dollars in campaign contributions? And he pointed out that the subsidies on ethanol and other things that they benefited from were estimated to be worth a hundred billion dollars. That's a thousand dollars for every one dollar invested, a thousand dollar return. That's a pretty good. That's a thousand thousand percent return, is it? Anyway, it's a good return. If, if I can if I can start you know investing in stocks and for every dollar I invest I get back a thousand, I'm going to do that a lot more. And and it is that sort of thing. Government people in government. A lot of times, maybe they want to do the right thing. But even then, somebody comes up, they can help their friend while they're doing the right thing. These, I think it was FDR who said, it was FDR who said, nothing in politics happens by accident. And if you don't think that when that, you know, 
Solyndra, remember the, the uh, kind of clean energy company during the Obama administration, they got, what, $500 million or something and then kind of went belly up. Um, but if you don't think that they knew somebody in government, uh, I mean, that's how it works. And a lot of the things that are going on, a lot of the programs that are splurging money all over the place, most people don't even know they exist. You wouldn't even know to apply for the money unless you knew somebody in the, you know, in the inside in the game. So it's people do have this tendency. I think you're right, Tim, that that this is about graves. And OK, there's some crazy law. These sorts of rules are all over the place. They're in because they help somebody at somebody else's expense and because that somebody was able to find a politician or a bureaucrat. But usually I think it's the politician to write the rules or do the program in such a way that they get a big payout. It's, it's like the tax code. You know, I know, I, I know some wealthy people who have lobbied to get little different things in the tax code. It might make a hundred million dollars worth of difference for them. Now, you know, that means that every time the politicians touch the tax code, they can kind of send little envelopes out. You might want to send me a contribution. And this is how government works. It's, it's um, you know, when you think about it, when people are paying attention, then, you know, we have a, a good system. But, you know, the, the tendency for people is to do what's in their self-interest. And that is true whether they're running their own company or whether they have their hand in the in the jar that has all of our tax dollars or maybe our social security lockbox in it. There's a problem here. Uh, this runs completely counter to the Hanlon's razor. It's the principle but, that never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence. Now, it's a fun little rule, and we all chuckle over it. But the thing is, in politics, it's not quite malice that's doing it. I guess FDR would say never attribute to incompetence what can be explained by greed. Yes. Yes. No. And I think in, in, you know, oftentimes we want to it's just a mistake and we want to think that someone purposely did something. But I think in government, we ought to reverse that. And that, you know, unless you're sure, really sure this was a mistake, you better look at who benefited from it, because I don't think many mistakes happen. Well, thank you for tuning in to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find this podcast available on SoundCloud, and you can find it available also through many podcatchers, such as Apple's and Google's and Pocket Cast, and I think Stitcher and a few others. And it's on YouTube. I place it up on my BitChute account. And you should visit thisiscommonsense.org five days a week. That's where Paul has been writing commentary since 1999. Thanks for stopping by.